Hello and welcome to the Alatia Foundation podcast. My name is Nawid Jabarkil. Delighted to be joined for this edition by Neil Fleming, the global head of editorial at commodities and energy publisher Argus Media. Neil, welcome to the Alatia Foundation podcast. Thank you, Nawid. For listeners then who aren't familiar with the work of Argus Media, what's the core function and uh, who's behind the company? So Argus Media is uh, what is generally known as a price reporting agency around the world. These are specialist journalist organizations that grew up really in the second half of the 20th century as markets for commodities began to evolve a lot more sophistication. Uh, And we have two or three primary roles. One is to write news about these markets. The other is to write analysis. And last and most importantly, we have a large number of specialists who study the market on a daily basis, collect information from those markets and come up with price assessments, as they're called, which are then used by the markets themselves as the basis for things like long-term contracts or in some cases financial instrument settlement. So price discovery is the core function of what we do, but uh, explanation of markets in general is a very large piece uh, of the operation too. And we'll pick your brains on some of the those explanations. But just looking at your own role, then you previously worked for Independent Commodity Intelligence Services (ICIS) as well as Platts. Uh, to an outsider, they appear pretty similar organisations. Just tell us about how they're distinctive, and also what makes uh, your new place, Argus Media, different from them. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, all these businesses are quite similar because the constraints of Uh, the industry we work in tend to push us in similar directions and those directions are always uh, developing robust methodologies, uh, developing a relationship of trust with the industry uh, and developing a high level of expertise on every market that we serve. I suppose the primary difference between Argus Media and both Platts and ICIS is that we are uh, a privately held company. We don't have uh, a public listing, so there's no quarterly pressure to deliver results. This may mean that we are in a better position to invest in certain things for the long term. Um, We're also arguably more nimble because we're not part of a large corporation, uh, Platts is part of S&P and in fact it's renamed itself S&P Global Commodities. ICIS is part of RELX, R-E-L-X, also a very large publishing house and that changes the dynamic a bit and uh, creates arguably for Argus a a more nimble environment in which we can react to evolutionary developments in markets uh, potentially more quickly. And as you said, one of the key things uh, you do at Argus Media is looking at the information flow regarding commodities and pricing as well. Let's start with a question then that we we often ask uh, people on this podcast. Uh, Peak oil, have we reached it yet? If not, when do you think it will be reached? Peak oil is one of those elusive things. Uh, It may be a peak that is never reached, I think. And arguably at this point, it 
uh, is not even a particularly useful concept. Um, if I listen to our economists, uh, they will tell me that PCOR has certainly not arrived yet. Um, we may be looking at 2028 to 2030 as the point where uh, we really go over the hill. But there are many factors that could delay it. Um, we've seen the reaction uh, of the world to the outbreak of uh, war in Ukraine, and now that has pushed back uh, some of the world's plans for energy transition. And I think you know, that's a story that will evolve and is very, very difficult to predict when we will actually cross that, uh, that mountain ridge. Yeah, it's interesting to also hear the different uh, perspectives and views that people have uh, on that question. But uh, moving on to some of the sorts of commodities that, that you look at, let's talk about coal then, often referred mm. to as dirty, but more coal uh, than ever being mined and used currently. Uh, what, what do you think is the driver behind that? Is it primarily China or uh, a bigger demand globally for, for more energy, especially with what's happened geopolitically in recent years? I think that there's two or three things. One is that um, coal is very plentiful. Um, it's cheap and easy to produce. Um, it uh, is a lot of people's go-to uh, energy source for security purposes. And in a, a risky environment, people reach for coal uh, perhaps more readily than we thought they would. Uh, China is you know, the world's biggest producer, consumer and importer of coal and therefore you know it is the largest driver of demand but we see uh, growing demand elsewhere in Asia for example in countries like Vietnam or the Philippines uh, and there's a couple of factors in play one is as I said energy security the other is relative cost um, and in the case of China there's a very interesting uh, story to be told about uh, what has happened to Chinese uh, hydroelectric generation over the past several years in which uh, low rainfall is actually pushing up uh, demand for coal in quite a, an extraordinary way. And um, This year we've seen uh, 25 million tons per year growth in Chinese uh, coal demand in the power sector uh, because uh, of poor rainfall uh, along the Yangtze River. And that's a story that will, I think, continue to evolve um, as climate change potentially causes further disruption to Chinese water supply. It's a very interesting story. Um, in Europe, of course, people have reached for coal as the backup to gas uh, in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine. And yeah, that brings me perfectly onto the the next point I wanted to touch upon, not just the, the, the invasion of Ukraine and, and the impact on gas supplies, but also climate change. If you look at Europe, uh, one reason that perhaps uh, the gas shortages haven't been as severe is because of the unseasonably warm uh, summers that they've had. How do you view the situation this year then? Stocks looking fairly high. We're not really into the restocking season. Is Europe well stocked for gas this winter? Uh, on paper, yes, it is very well stocked. Um, as you say, we haven't had a cold winter. Last winter could have been challenging uh, for Europe uh, had it been very cold, but it wasn't. Uh, 
and uh, Europe arguably overfilled its gas stocks last summer. Um, right now, uh, it is on track to survive another winter. If injections halted for some reason, uh, then it might be problematic. Uh, and it's also worth noting, of course, that storage only covers part of the demand. Uh, so continued imports will be required and you could see unplanned disruptions to gas supply that could still throw a spanner in the works, I think. And one um, potential area that could happen is with pipeline gas. We've seen uh, European governments, companies as well all across Europe really change the way they um, they source their energy after uh, what happened and is continuing to happen in Ukraine. Uh, there is still some Russian gas going to Europe, though. Uh, what do you think is behind this? Is it a case of Russia just honouring its commitments or is it a matter of time before it winds down? Um, I think that, that there's some complex reasons for that continued flow. One is uh, a, a Russian desire to present uh, what it's doing in Ukraine as a peacekeeping operation. Um, and it continues to meet contractual obligations, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, through the pipeline gas. Um, and you could see that supply as a form of political leverage. You could see it as a tool to uh, reduce the unity in the EU's collective decision making, because obviously these East European countries are very dependent on Russian gas uh, for their supply. Um, they're also the, 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 the cut of last resort, as you said, uh, in the event that things do not resolve themselves over the coming months. Uh, Russia still has in reserve the ability to switch off that supply. And looking at, uh, at a more technical question, if you like, dated Brent assessments, uh, various authorities uh, reporting at the moment that it's changed its basis drastically. Uh, can you just tell us a bit more about the need for that change? What's happening and how has Argus Media uh, responded to the change? Yeah, Brent is a is a curious construct. It is, you know, as you know, originally was the price of a North Sea uh, crude field called Brent. There's almost none of that left. And for many years, it's been uh, constructed from a pool of other North Sea crude oils uh, that were included in the mechanism 22 years ago, roughly. Um, at the time I was still at Platts, in fact. Um, the problem is that all crude oils run out and that has now pretty much happened again uh, to the North Sea crudes that were in the pool and therefore uh, in order to keep the mechanism running, and it is the most important uh, oil price in the world, uh, the industry has uh, come together to agree that including uh, North American crude, WTI, uh, on a delivered uh, to European basis in the pool is a viable way of maintaining liquidity in the instrument. The problem is always you need enough cargoes to prevent uh, the price becoming extremely volatile. And the addition of WTI solves that problem for now. Um, so it's been a very interesting switch. Uh, Argus actually started modeling the effects of including WTI in Brent 
as long ago as 2018. Um, and we have uh, adopted the same approach as our competitors and are including it now. Um, and what, what will be very interesting is whether Brent as a European instrument really survives or whether in effect what has happened is that uh, WTI crude is going to take over uh, the role of the price setter in effect. It certainly just to, seems to be at the moment. Just to pick up on that point and broaden it a bit, there have been other attempts as well, the Dubai Oman benchmark, China looking to take a, a more active role in assessment of prices. Do you see those as uh, as having any real impact, potentially threatening Brent and WTI one day, or, or is that fanciful thinking? I think it it's very difficult for another instrument to come along and run that over. Um, Dubai and Oman have always functioned as, as a viable benchmark for Asia, uh, but they are uh, arguably, in a sense, they're deriving their value from the core Brent complex. They trade as a, as a differential to Brent. Um, and it has been now for 40 years pretty much the driver of uh, a global network of pricing that's very, very hard to unpick. It's one of the reasons why the industry is so determined to keep it going is that were it to fall apart, uh, it would be very difficult to find a, an alternative that everyone could agree on. Um, China's desire to have China-based pricing is interesting but difficult for them to enact because uh, of state intervention in production and supply and refining, which tends to put people off using uh, the price created as a benchmark for long-term contracts or derivatives because the possibility of sudden intervention uh, makes it uh, a risky instrument to use. Yeah, and it's interesting when you see, I mean, there's been a lot of noise recently about the role of the US dollar, for example, in in pricing and settling um, the oil trade. And uh, it seems when you talk to uh, ministers or other senior officials in the Middle East, in this region at least, that, that it may be uh, overblown hype at the, at the moment, given the, the, the dominance that it continues to have. But looking at the Middle East, plenty of excitement here over uh, one big event in, in the next few months, COP28, which will take place in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, as we move towards that, industry and governments becoming preoccupied again with climate change and those mitigation targets, just one aspect of the, the, of the overall industry. But what are your thoughts on global warming? Can we limit it to one and a half degrees Celsius by 2050? I, sadly, I think the chances of that happening are quite low, uh, probably. 20% at best. Um, I, it is not clear that we have done anything like enough uh, early enough to be where we ought to be uh, right now or where we ought to be by 2030. And increasingly, it's clear that you can only go at a certain pace uh, if you're not going to trigger a lot of pushback from different parts of uh, the world economy. We've seen it in Germany recently with uh, the automotive industry pushing back against over rapid uh, decarbonisation of 
the automotive industry, um, there really doesn't seem to be enough infrastructure in place to uh, effect some of the things that governments are trying to do. And these are not things that you can do by decree necessarily. Uh, they may require a very large level of investment. Uh, it's very expensive uh, achieving the transition. So uh, where we get to by 2050 is going to be a very interesting uh, thing to watch. But I fear that we won't get as far as the one and a half degrees. Yeah, and looking at uh, another commodity type, uh, arguably one that uh, isn't getting the headlines, but could be crucially important for where the world's heading in the future, metals. Uh, Argus Media does its battery materials service looking at the sector. Just tell us what you think about the current state of play and particularly about the worries, concerns over uh, shortages of things like lithium in the years to come. Yeah, battery metals are a hugely important part of this whole transition story. <clears throat> and we're providing global coverage um, of the metals and chemicals uh, involved, kind of looking at the whole value chain from mines to refineries to end users and uh, down into recycling. Uh, there are concerns about the limits to the supply of some uh, battery materials. Lithium demand is going to carry on growing over the next decade. Um, and there are a lot of developments on the supply side to try and keep up. Um, and we expect there to be actually a slight surplus uh, in this in production in the next couple of years, certainly by the mid 20s. Uh, but if we look towards the second half of the decade, it's a bit of a different story. Um, there will probably be a squeeze. Uh, demand likely to exceed supply and we'll see prices um, rocketing up arguably towards 2030. Um, part of that might be mitigated by battery recycling which is ramping up um, over the next several years. It's a, quite a new industry but we think maybe 13% as much as 13% of lithium demand will be covered by recycling by around 2032. And there are wider concerns about uh, rare earths and their uh, availability. Again, uh, you guys look at rare earth analytics uh, and in some of the publications that you do. Just uh, for, for listeners who may not be too familiar, just tell us what, what rare earths are, uh, why they're important and why there's so much concern uh, about <coughs> China's dominance in, in the supply chain uh, as we've seen it being dragged rare earths into the geopolitical rivalry between the US and China? Yeah, rare earths, I mean, it's an interesting name because rare earth elements are not actually rare at all. Um, you get them all over the earth's crust. Uh, the problem is they're very difficult to extract and process. It's very costly. It's environmentally very challenging. And, you know, it has been said that metals are the dirty secret of the energy transition that um, the business of extracting rare earths is extremely environmentally challenging. It takes a very long time to develop uh, projects uh, because of regulation and permitting. Um, and some of these things take, you know, 10 to 15 years to get going. And that's really why China has 
become the dominant player in rares because they're just ahead of the game in terms of where they are in developing uh, the mining and processing rares. They're a very, very hot topic because they're used um, for multiple industrial military applications. You put rare earths in uh, electric vehicles, they go in guidance systems, sonar, and so on and so forth, which makes them politically sensitive when you look at the military applications that they have. Um, and uh, the primary use is to use very powerful, is to, sorry, to make very powerful magnets um, that are great for propulsion. Um, and you find them in the engines of electric cars and in wind turbines. Um, China's invested billions over the years in developing rare earth uh, production systems, um, and the rest of the world hasn't. Um, and so there's a catch up race going on. Um, a lot of people now worried that we're basically entirely dependent on China for these critical minerals. Um, there are a lot of rare earth projects under development, but as I say, it's the processing that um, is complex and difficult and takes time. Um, and the conversion of the earths into magnets at that point um, uh, also takes time. And there's only one plant, uh, a separation plant, operating outside China right now, uh, which is in Malaysia. It's remarkable, isn't it? And uh, it probably uh, tells you why the IEA and even the United Nations are calling for uh, further diversification of, uh, of supply chains. But looking, changing tack a bit then and looking at uh, you and your past career, uh, looking <coughs> at your LinkedIn profile, it's uh, said you uh, previously spent time as a playwright, poet, television writer and founder of the theatre company Hydro Cracker. As a broadcaster, it's often easy to tell when you when you hear someone's voice and uh, uh, perhaps their, their artistic uh, streak comes through. Just tell us a bit about your, your career and the writing element of it. Did it begin as a hobby and where do you think it's going to take you next? It actually began as, as the main plan. Uh, back in my 20s, but I uh, rather fell in love with journalism somewhere along the line. And there was a very long uh, period when all I did was uh, work as a reporter in uh, East Africa and Southern Africa and indeed in the Middle East. Um, uh, and ironically, I went back to writing creatively when I became uh, a senior manager of journalists. Uh, at Platts because I was no longer writing professionally uh, in the same way that I had been. Um, and that's when I began writing plays again after a sort of 15 year interval. Uh, right now, I don't really have any time to do anything other than manage the 530 journalists who work for Argus Media around the world. So it's slightly on hold, um, but I am working on a movie that is hopefully going into production sometime this year, which uh, could be quite interesting uh, if it happens. And there's always a big if for movies. Oh, fingers crossed. Yeah, all the, all the best with that. It's fascinating. Um, and just one final question then, a fairly big one to, to round off then for, for our listeners. Uh, the next few years, fossil fuel demand and pricing 
the sorts of volatility we've seen recently, is that going to stay or will prices calm and settle down, do you think? I think it's going to stay um, for several reasons, not just because we have uh, a lot of political instability uh, around the world uh, right now, but also because in the process of trying to drive an energy transition, we are likely to get it wrong uh, several times. And there is a risk that we reduce the supply of conventional uh, hydrocarbons too quickly. Uh, we cause an accidental energy shortage somewhere down the road between now and 2050. Um, all that we, you know, as these things, we, we speak about the energy transition as if it was something uh, easy to do and inevitable and maybe quite short. That's what a transition suggests. And I don't think it's any of those things. It's quite a chaotic process through which we are uh, a bit short of a roadmap right now. So it's going to be quite experimental. And we are going to see, I think, more political disruption uh, beyond what we currently have because of challenges to economies around the world, you know, massive inflation in some parts uh, of Latin America, indeed in the Middle East. Um, and those things are going to cause short-term disruption and upheaval over the next five, 10 years, I think. So it's a, it's a fascinating time to be studying the whole energy landscape. Absolutely. Uh, well, we'll uh, have to leave it there uh, because of time, Neil. But thank you so much for your insights into uh, all sorts of things, really, the world of media, data publishing, the energy industry, where it is today and where it's heading, and even uh, uh, potentially your, uh, your movie as well that we hope does get made. Thanks for joining us, Neil. The Foundation really looks forward to, to having you back, hopefully once that that movie's uh, made its way onto the big screen. It's nothing to do with energy. <laughs> oh, well, that's uh, that's good then, but we'll uh, be tuned in nonetheless. Thank you uh, as well, of course, for listening. As always, be sure to keep up to date with all of the Alatea Foundation's work by following us on Twitter and on YouTube and check out our official website at www.abhafoundation.org.